Welcome to a special episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Um, it is with a good friend. Uh, his name is Hayden, and I met him through Fit for Service. And he, uh, for about 20 years, was a professional political consultant for a lot of democratic um, organizations. And he's one of the most interesting people that I've ever met for his ability to be able to have conversations about things that he doesn't agree with in good faith. And this is a big thing that I've been super interested in is this idea of um, being critical of another story or another person in good faith as opposed to what seems to be the baseline of our culture right now, which is to be in quote-unquote bad faith and to kind of define those. To critique in good faith is with an underlying current of I want your life to be better. I want my life to be better. I want whatever it is that you're doing to work more effectively or more beautifully. And to critique in bad faith is um, I want you to hurt I want you to feel bad. I want you to fail. And uh, without getting too grandiose, I think one of the most important things for our generation to learn how to do a little bit better is to contend with ideas that we don't agree with in good faith. And that if you play out game theory dynamics to their fullest extent, uh, when two large enough tribes uh, critique in bad faith, it leads to war. And uh, we live in a time where a big enough tribe has access to nuclear weapons and biological warfare and things of that nature, and that, that game won't work anymore. And so what we wanted to do with this podcast was kind of like lay the groundworks for how to have difficult conversations in good faith and then at the end of the podcast, we actually try to demo what it would look like. And one of my big hopes and invitations for people who listen to this podcast is to take the personal responsibility to look out in their life where they are not interacting with other groups in good faith and to really feel the weight of that choice and to hopefully choose to carry the tension and the burden of trying to contend with people that you don't agree with in good faith because I feel it's sacredly important. And so we do our best to kind of lay the groundworks and then we get into it. And I think that this is going to be a really uh, interesting and different podcasts than most of the podcasts that I do. So I would love to hear from you guys afterwards through either like tagging me on Instagram or sending emails or whatever the medium is. And let me know what you thought of this podcast. Because um, it was vulnerable to do it. And so uh, I hope that you listen in good faith. And I look forward to hearing about what your feedback is in good faith. Uh, if you want to stay connected, um, sign up for my newsletter at erigazzi.com. And if this podcast resonated with you, share it with people that you think it might help. So without further ado, 
Here's the myth of Hayden. Hayden, you are finally on the podcast. We have been going back and forth on this for what feels like six months now. And we tried it about three weeks ago and we got about 37 minutes into it. It was, and it was the most important thing either of us have ever said in our lives. And this is not an exaggeration. And then God struck it down or the deep state or whatever else. Um, or maybe there was just a technological accident and then we tell stories from that to inflate our current sense of self and our current set of stories. And that's the type of shit that we're going to get into today. Uh, so first, thank you for being patient and uh, working with all the technicalities to arrive here. And number two, I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience and then we're going to get into the motherfucking ish. I love it. I love it. It was a beautiful 37 minutes, but it was exactly as it was supposed to be. Like I checked in with my friends at the deep state. It wasn't. <laughs> um, so, you know, we were too busy with our other projects, but uh, you know, you might want to talk to your people. So I'm Hayden, uh, super stoked to be here. Uh, friend of Eric's and uh, professionally, you know, for the last 20 or so years, I've been a organizer and operative on the left, broadly construed. I, uh, but the largest political action committee in the country at a, at a time. I've won a lot of really challenging campaigns and elections. And I spent a lot of my life doing, uh, doing organizing and trying to figure out sort of win, lose, or draw. How do we build power for the long term? And trying to build power in a way that helped people realize the type of world that we want to live in. Um, but I think what's more important is <laughs> sort of where I come from, where I am today. So where I come from is... I grew up in a place called East Boston. Uh, thing about Eastie is it stays poor, but the waves of immigrants moving through East Boston stays the same, or that's what changes. Uh, so I come from like a thousand years of mostly poor Irish people, uh, but my family was like <laughs> the slow adopters. And so we were like the last Irish family on the block. And I remember growing up and, you know, like I remember really young I didn't have language for it, but I understood things like, you know, my parents and my friends' parents and families were afraid kind of all the time uh, and had a lot of rage and had a lot of grief. And, uh, and that was a really common experience. Um, and everyone was afraid that they would not be able to take care of themselves and take care of their families. And that was like a really constant and present thing. Um, but I also noticed that, you know, uh, most of the other families in my community were at that time from Southeast Asia, a little later, it's mostly people from Central and South America. And anyway, even though we had these deep common experiences with our parents uh, being afraid, you know, feeling a lot of rage, feeling a lot of grief, when we listened to our parents talk, they really uh, were hyper-focused on the differences. And that's the first place I ever learned heard really like racist language, slurs, things like that. And it just stuck with me. It just felt wild to me that here we all were living in this community struggling. Uh, and it seemed to me like we had a tremendous amount of depth and connection and, and, and things in common. Uh, but there was this hyper focus on, on, on differentiation. Um, mm. And I think, you know, the other thing is by the time I went to college, every kid, almost every kid that I grew up with was in some kind of missing rehab debt or jail. And when I got to college, I realized that people just sort of stumbled into a middle-class existence. Uh, and I didn't know that life was like that. So I say all that to say, I 
these are the things that I've been trying to figure out my entire life. These are the questions that have stuck with me my entire life. And I feel like this moment and some of Eric, what you and I spent a lot of time talking about, it sort of comes back to that, that question of difference. Um, I just, I feel like, I feel like we're living through a moment right now where we are struggling so much to hold each other's humanity across difference. And, and it really frightens me in a way that uh, I've never, I think, felt afraid. And I think that maybe the most important thing before us, the most important project of our time is figuring out how we shift that dynamic so that we can, we can talk to each other across difference. We can hold each other's humanity and we can figure out a lot of these really uh, huge challenges in front of us without destroying ourselves. So that's what yeah. I'm trying to figure out. And I remember feeling uh, the thing that you shared with me that really lit me up uh, as to why we should connect and have yeah. more conversations around this is that you were saying that for like 20 years, you professionally were concerned with how does how do I allow or make the left to win, period? And I want to get good at that. And then you got to a point within the last couple of years where you realized, oh shit, we can't even talk to the other team anymore in the way that we've been able to talk for the last 20 years. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm starting to realize the most important thing is not left win full stop. It's how do we get the game to start up again? where there can even be winning and losing because right now, at least in the last couple of years, you've been on the forefronts of this part of our zeitgeist and you can feel it's almost like an earthquake has happened and two masses of land are starting to break apart. That's right. And it's like the very beginning of like, oh shit, like I can't walk over there anymore. Yeah. And that, that to you is the clear, this is a more important game to start to play. And yeah. this plugs into what I've been really passionate about uh, for about the last year now. <clears throat> the short version of the long story is uh, I got introduced to existential risk theory for the first time in my life. My fragile identity got ruptured in a way that was existential as to what is a meaningful life to live. And what I realized is any type of life that wasn't dedicated to trying to be a part of things that would help the next seven generations was not only negligent, but was borderline sociopathic now that I was becoming really consciously aware of the type of risks that humanity faces. Yeah. And that my personal alchemy of that was... <clears throat> I'm not a physicist. I'm not going to revolutionize the way regenerative farming is done at scale. My background and my gifts are with psychology and communication. And I think where I can lend my genius in my lifetime is trying to improve, even if it's 1%, how people who don't agree with other people, to put it mildly, would be able to play conversation games where they could at least communicate and that you know this is a big part of my work going forward and real quick i think something that would be a cool frame for us to play with uh as we start to try to come to some uh solutions is 
even in war, there's this idea of war crimes. Mm -hmm. And that implies that even in war, countries are agreeing to play a game where there are rules to how war is done. And that like you will be punished by other players if you break those rules, but you can still eat, you can still make the move of war. And that it feels like one of the things that it feels like we've lost in our conversations, because on a very physiologically real level, a good argument feels like war. Like your physiology is being activated as if you're being attacked. And so it's actually a proper metaphor to bring in here. But that if you don't have a meta structure of the communication game that you're playing, um, it's going to be hard to get into the deep contending. And it reminds me of sports games and it reminds me of like good containers for BDSM, which is an interesting thing, but I think all three overlap in that if there are clear rules, it allows for the depth of intimacy into the aggression or into the contending to go yeah. deeper. And there's something, there is something about becoming fully alive and becoming fully human that requires exerting in the way of contending with another human that if you don't have, there is like a fundamental tendril of the of the like tree of what it means to be a fully alive human withers if you don't physically and linguistically contend mm. but in order to contend it needs a container of rules that both parties agree upon and i think that that's also one of the big like critiques of people who don't agree with what they would call cancel culture is that there's this subtle and hard to articulate will to contend that feels like if it's removed, some like some human need is being removed. And that, of course, there's a spectrum on that will to contend because on the far end, you know, there's mass groups producing propaganda that isn't really contending, but that people should be able to fucking argue. And so, you know, one of the things that you and I are interested in trying to play with is like, what are good, what are good meta rules to have difficult conversations so that the two people can actually contend and grow and transform because of the conversation? Yeah, man. I should have asked you at the beginning, Eric, do you, do you want to have a safe word? Yes. Let's go. Okay. All right. What is it? Is it snowflake? <laughs> All right. So Perfect. at any point, right back at you. Yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, to put it really succinctly, you're right. I've spent my entire adult life building the project of the left, uh, broadly construed. And I feel like uh, at this moment, the most important uh, project to be engaged in is the one that you're talking about uh, more than the left or the right. It's figuring out how do we figure out how to help folks uh, really communicate across difference. Um, and it, it's not, and I think you sort of alluded to this, like, I don't think either of us is talking about or interested in, you know, how do we find compromise and water things down in such a way uh, that they are 
acceptable across the boards. I actually don't think that's what we're talking about. Um, right. we think about that a lot as like a, a third way. Um, and I think that when you were talking about, you know, that, that need to contend, um, I think about that as one way to frame, uh, like sort of two things. One is the only way I understand to sort of find any sort of truth or figure anything out, out about the world is to talk to folks that think differently than I do. Right. Yeah. And I sort of assume going into that conversation, uh, <laughs> that I'm wrong about a bunch of stuff and you're wrong about a bunch of stuff, but we're going to tell each other the best version of the truth that we've got. We're going to listen hard yeah. and then we're going to find pieces that we didn't have on our own because we're bringing in different sources and different worldviews and different perspectives. And that is just necessary to, it, it is the only way I know how to find anything like truth. And it doesn't mean that, you know, oh, I'm going to adopt what the other person is saying. But by understanding that perspective and that different data and those different views that they bring in, I have a better sense of the entire world, myself and them. But I also think that it's about, it's about intimacy. It's yes. about a fundamental human need for intimacy and connection, which I think that requires us to be able to uh, tell each other, you know, our truths, our deepest held values, you know, yeah. what we see. Um, and I, I think also uh, to, to, to hear that from the other person. Again, not to make way or roll over and accept it, but uh, yeah. I think you've got to be able to talk about it. You know, I think people mean different things when they say cancel culture, but what, what I think is true is that I think two things. I think one, I think it is very dangerous. I think there are fascist tendencies on the left and on the right. Um, I think that it is always dangerous when we push ideas that we find distasteful uh, out of the light um, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one of the most important ones is that we push ideas that for whatever reasons, a group of folks has decided is unacceptable when we push folks with that group of ideas into insulated uh, groups where they only talk to each other. And what that means is there's no uh, challenge or uh, outside information. Uh, right. And so it's just allowed to become a reinforcing, you know, self-reinforcing sort of set of truths uh, that are never exposed to challenge or difference. Yeah, one and, of the beautiful things yeah. about contending with yeah. and being contended with is that you will have sometimes the experience where the gnosis in your body is telling you, oh, fuck, I'm wrong. Yep. And that, that's, right. that's one of the beautiful things about it being in the light. And the beautiful thing about being a human being is that that moment <laughs> gives us a choice point, right? Like we're, we're actually, in many ways, we are hardwired and we are socialized culturally to reject that feeling, yep. right? Because if yep. we accept that feeling, it's gonna, it creates dissonance and, and, it's, and it's challenging. But we also get to choose. And that is like, those are the most incredible moments, mm. most satisfying, most powerful moments I've ever had in my life mm. on both ends of that experience. Like when we choose uh, not to sort of hide and get small and close ourselves off, but to open ourselves up um, yeah. and shift. So, yeah. I, this is, so this is incredibly uh, juicy that like that, if you can have the subtle inner awareness yeah. to notice when you're physiologically starting to feel that archetypical I'm wrong, that that is an access point to incredible intimacy. Cause, oh, yeah. And so there's a couple of things that I want to do here that feel like they'll be really helpful to both us and anyone listening. And one yeah. is... 
the absolute like psychedelic instant intimacy that would happen if you were in kind of a contentious conversation with someone and you notice them have a moment where their awareness kind of goes into their body yeah. and they're silent for a moment and they close their eyes and they say something like, I can feel physiologically that it feels like I'm wrong. Yeah. And I'm starting yeah. to notice that there's this like shame that's kind of coming through my oh, chest my and, it, and like into my throat and around my jawline. And I'm actually seeing a memory of a time when I was six mm-hmm. and uh, I lied to my mom and she got really upset and she hit me. Can That's you right. imagine the level of softening that the mm-hmm. other person would feel instantly where the entire vibe of the conversation that was the, these are my ideas, I'm attacking your ideas and I'm trying to prove you wrong. Like the whole thing would transform into what might be one of the best stories that you would tell for the rest of your life about a conversation that you had with like a Trump supporter or something. Totally, yeah. And that the access point to that is the person who chooses to be vulnerable. No, a, a, a thousand percent. And I, I know we were chatting a little earlier, but you know, I've been thinking a lot about you know, this idea of triggers uh, and the way we talk about being triggered uh, in our culture and then being a little like oversimpl- oversimplifying it and being a little hyperbolic, but it's almost always talked about as like a negative thing, a thing we want to warn about, a thing we want to avoid, a thing that makes our us freeze or run and sort of makes us fearful. It makes our aperture smaller um but i've been thinking a lot about the triggers in the right container like what you're talking about um when folks are in a triggered you know state together can also just be this incredible invitation to to intimacy an invitation yeah for us to to go deeper in ourselves say what's happening here you know to, to share it with the other uh and to just have that moment is 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 really can be really really transformative and i kind of think it's a way in which our individual and collective subconscious or nervous systems are giving us an opportunity, you know, to, to heal each other. Right. Um, and I think and that that's the, like key. the much deeper dynamic that's happening or could, I, can be happening if we, if we think, if we, if we allow ourselves, uh, that. Right. So again, the thing that I'm hearing that's really poignant is our triggers are an invitation to choose yep. to be vulnerable yep. that will bring deeper intimacy. Yeah. And like a thing that I, I really haven't had the language for until just recently that I've yeah. always felt when talking about politics with people is in my entire, like for the entirety of my life, I've really have never been in the presence of what has felt like experts until maybe the last like two years. Mm-hmm. And everyone that I knew who ever talked about anything with politics were, were around my age did no actual work in the world that was political, but had a favorite news source that they wanted to argue in favor for. And the feeling that I had, one of the feelings is like, I could feel that I wasn't making contact with who they were in this moment. And that, it's almost like they had one of those blocking pads that a football player would have. Mm. And they were like 
almost like trying to get me to run at them so they could hit me with the blocking pad. And it was just kind of this confusion of like, I'm not even playing football. Like, and, um, yeah. One of the things that I've been feeling into specifically like the last like week and a half is if you can, I think first it's, are you even agreeing to enter into a specific type of linguistic game where the two of us are trying to like update our models of reality? You know, because mm. most of us have been so culturally indoctrinated into, you know, what we call like shallow talk where we're not even in the psychological space to like go through the inner tension of updating a world model. So it's almost like people need to know that they're entering into that type of conversation with someone. And then that's where you get the chance to agree upon a set of like communication rules. But that once you're in that arena, it feels like one of the most incredible important things that you can do is one, begin to track what's happening in your body as you're talking. Yeah. Which is like start to cultivate the inner eye to look for quote unquote triggers. Yeah. And then as you're talking about like a propositional statement about the left or the right or the state of the world or whatever, track when your body is starting to feel constricted or if you're starting to feel like blood rise to your face, or if you're starting to feel a constriction in your throat, or you're starting to feel your heart rate increase. And then to make it a part of the conversation of saying, I notice as you're talking about vaccine mandates that I'm feeling X in my body, and I'm starting to feel like an inner image of you know a year ago, when I saw my father do X and because of Y. And that what that allows for is it's like, it like my nervous system can begin to co-regulate with your nervous system mm. so we can start to feel like friends yeah. while we talk about contentious ideas. Because yeah. the football player with the pad, it's like, you haven't shown one ounce of vulnerability. So I actually feel like you're not of my physiological tribe. And so we're fighting. And there's something about the uh, sharing of vulnerable, intimate feelings that like tells our nervous system, this is an ally. Yeah. Which feels yeah. like it anchors the roots for us to talk about, you know, inflammatory ideas because just real quick like if you actually get someone to the place where they might change their mind you're essentially asking them to transform their world of reality and it's not a small ask and so it's like let's let's merge our roots through being vulnerable so we can feel like we're kin so that if one of us actually changes the other person's mind we can hold space while they go through a micro death rebirth process no, I, I think that's right. I also think, you know, I mean, just, I want to, I want to talk w- about what you just shared there, but just like ground us. Cause I realize like we talk all the time, um, mm. but like for context, for folks that are listening that lucky for you, uh, don't, don't hear all of our long conversations, but you know, I think like, you know, I'm a, I'm a trans guy. I'm a, you know, progressive, uh, you know, professional organizer and operative on the left. Um, Eric, you know, 
uh, you know, y'all know Eric Godsey, but he moves in a little bit of a different world than me. Um, and, you know, I, I think like the, the types of things we're talking about, just like to, to ground us is, you know, for me, I, I move in lots of different worlds, right? Like my friends are not only on the left, they're folks in the middle and there are folks pretty far to the right. And I'd say during this COVID, during this experience of COVID, um, you know, what, what we're talking about here is, you know, I've had friends on both the left, what we, we'll just call them the left and the right, uh, make jokes about and laugh about uh, folks on the other side that have died in a way that I've never experienced mm. before. Um, you know, if, a, if an anti-vaxxer got, got sick and passed away, there, there's a sort of dehumanizing, mean-spirited delight. Um, and so too, uh, my friends on the other side of the, I won't call it an aisle, but, uh, you know, if, you know, someone that wore a mask and had the vaccinations and the boosters died, there's sort of a, like, almost like a glee and a delight. And, and it's, it's those sort of exchanges that, that really, or I find, you know, uh, uh, troubling and like, yeah. we're not going to be able to, to find our way to move through it. Or, you know, like just to give another example you know, in the work that, that I do. And I think the things that we miss, I've been thinking a lot about this. There, you, Eric, you're in Texas right now. Yeah. There's a lot of conversation about the potential law involving trans kids, I think happening in your state. Yeah. I, just I don't know if you've been following it, yeah. but yeah. But what I'd say is, you know, the, the, the discourse and the conversations about, you know, trans rights gets incredibly charged and incredibly heated. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, sort of two things. One is I ran a campaign uh, to, uh, it was in the, the suburbs of Chicago, uh, basically to protect a, a trans rights ordinance for, for kids. And, uh, and it was a successful campaign. We, were, we won uh, the election or the set of elections. We were outspent, all that jazz. But the thing that I was really struck by when, when I was leaving um, was that I wasn't sure, even though that we had won, that we had made uh, trans kids or anyone else safer. Um, like what we had done instead was, you know, got to fifty percent plus one in the, the 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 election day, but the folks in town were more polarized than ever. Uh, they understood less about each other than ever. You know, our side assumed anyone that had uh, questions or fear were bigots and idiots. Um, uh, and you know, I won't speak to what the other side thought of, of us, but, and it's not anyone's job to do that work right mm. after. And I actually think it's, that is the more important work, you know, right now wow. in Texas, there's incredibly charged, um, yeah. uh, discourse right now. And, you know, I got a friend, uh, won't mention his name, but, uh, he, you know, we were having this conversation on an email list and he was asking, he's got a, he's got a kid in school and, you know, he was asking some questions about, about trans rights and, and he wasn't, he was using language that other folks on the list found really offensive, but he was coming from an earnest place. He was trying to figure it out and his language got more and more and more, uh, aggressive as he was dismissed and not listened to. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that's like a dynamic that happens over and over again. So I just think like, whether it's trans rights or, or it's COVID or it's Trump or whatever it is, like. I think it. I think Eric and I, I think are are less focused on sort of where anyone falls in any of that, and and more focused on what's happening between us as human beings and as groups in this moment. And that and how if to we do don't figure that piece out, we're not going to be able to figure out saving this planet, saving ourselves, saving each other, and the really the crucial thing yeah. before us. And it just Eric, real quick, like what you said about tribe, what you said about you know when you talk to folks, 
about politics for a long time, you sort of like, it was almost like it was like a, a football player with a, with like a blocking pad. It was like, hit me. Right. But it, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And you said, you know, when you ask people to come into that intimate space, to be vulnerable, um, and to acknowledge sort of kinship and connection, you said, you know, that, that's not easy to do. I think part of it is because the way we are starting to really intensely construct political identity is that actually for me to listen to you, Eric, and to be moved by your point is a betrayal of yep. my tribe 100%. and a betrayal of myself. And it's not only, you know, an individual experience, but it's a rejection of the people who I know have my back and will hold me. And as the stakes get higher and things get more dangerous, that, be- that becomes harder and harder and harder to do. Um, and so I think that we have to figure out how we have to figure out an invitation to people to a bigger tribe, right? Because yeah. you, you can't just ask people to step out and be alone. Yeah. Um, we have to hold their humanity in that moment and, and, and throughout it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of beautiful nuance there. And one of the things, like one of the things that I was thinking about earlier is um, I think it might be hard to even imagine this but yeah. my like my side of the aisle yeah. has been uh since i was 20 no political dialogue yeah yep like totally. i i now have one friend who's a close friend who actively talks about politics but like i've been interested since i was 20 in like philosophy, psychology, and kind of like, you know, the uh, Aristotelian slash Platonic, like let's let's talk about the ideas. Yeah. And I recognize that a function of that being what was most interesting to me is a function of certain sets of privileges. But it's still the fact of my being that I have not had to cultivate a political identity to have tribe. And that there's this interesting feeling of um, I am freer to be swayed by the story and the experience of a specific person because my tribal membership has no prerequisite on what my political standings are. Like the current tribe that I'm a part of, it's, am I, are you kind? Are you competent? And are you actively working to make dope shit that helps people? Like that's kind of the criteria is kindness, competence, and make dope shit that helps people. And again, I know that that is a function of certain aspects of my upbringing and privileges because of the culture that I've been born into. And, uh, you know, I hold that. Um, the other thing that came through is, there's actually a twofold thing to this. One is um, the individual who is a part of a tribe where if they were swayed by the other side, it would feel like it was a betrayal to their side. There's an opportunity for you to be a revolutionary within your own tribal identity okay. that could help improve the vitality of your entire tribe and that just because it's hard does not mean it cannot be done. And that there's an interesting thing where like, 
you know, often in my work environment, uh, someone who I'm a leader of is going, you know, like will bring a, a problem about why a thing is hard. And it's funny, it might just take a five minute conversation where it's like, yeah. And then they kind of click and they have permission that it can be done even though it's hard. Um, so that's just an asterisk to put there. And yeah, I think no, I hear that. I think the the one the one piece I would that I I notice when you talk <laughs> about uh, I'm trying on a, a, a some of Eric's method methodologies here, but I noticed when you talked about um, since you're 20, you know what you were drawn to, and the uh, you know by virtue of not by having a certain set of privileges, not having to sort of choose a tribe along that to be right. that allowing you to be sort of more open, right? Um, and I notice that uh, that makes me feel anxious. Uh, and the reason it makes me feel anxious and the, the, the thing that it, it brings to my mind is I think that it's really, it is, it is really clear when a, you know, let's say a, a group of folks that are facing a particular struggle, say civil rights, right? In the 60s and 70s, right? To take it out of this moment, right? It's really clear to think about uh, sort of a political identity and a, and a, and a, and a, uh, a set of politics, explicit politics. I think the thing that I think is also true is that we all are members of tribes um, and that privilege shapes those tribes as much as a lack of privilege, right? And privilege is a really charged word. <laughs> now I'm picking it up, but um Wherever we are, whatever our identities are, right? Like, I just think it, it comes with, um, you know, a set of experiences, a set of assumptions, a set of people that you tend to be around. Um, and I just think that the, the sometimes we don't even notice. Sometimes the tribe can feel invisible, right? Yeah. Like, if it's not explicated by um, uh, some sort of dramatic point. Um, but I think that it's, I think it can be just as real, Um and can keep us locked in just as much. So a really interesting thing. I love that you shared that. And this is allowing for you and me to go into deeper intimacy about our lives. Because yeah. this will be a point. Snowflake. That I will almost, nope, nope. Where, where <laughs> I will. revisit Chomsky's conception of consent later. Please <laughs> Is that um, I had a really unique, uh, probably ages 17 through 23. In that um, I moved out of my family's house. Uh, my mom had a home in a different state that she was kind of uh, persuaded into buying beyond her means. And it was a whole weird situation. Mm. But so yeah. I lived in that home alone um, when I was a senior in high school. Uh, I had been a basketball star and then I had torn my rotator cuff and I wasn't able to play anymore. Got depressed, but didn't have the language for it back then to realize yeah. I was depressed. Got surgery got a bunch of opiates, uh, had no adult around me and ended up yeah. getting uh, dramatically addicted to opiates. Once I got off the opiates, I just graduated high school. I got super overweight because I was eating to try to get that like opiate sensation. Yeah. And um, I was the first uh, gender, I, I, I was the first person in my family to go to college. Yeah. And I had no idea how to do the college thing. And so I only applied to the local university that sent me a acceptance letter as a part of their marketing. Yeah. I went there 
it ended up being a private Baptist university. And I was a very staunch atheist at that point. And um, my disposition for four years was I smoke weed. I go here. I don't talk to anyone because I don't vibe with any of them. I'm just going to do my work and get my education because this is an opportunity that no one in my family has ever known. And I probably had about six friends around Mm -hmm. that time that uh, I wasn't close to any of them because we weren't, we didn't know how to be intimate. Mm -hmm. And it really felt like for a couple of years, like uh, I, I wasn't ingesting any news. I wasn't talking to almost anyone about anything like that was current. I was studying Carl Jung, uh, like ancient philosophers. And like, it felt like my psyche was in the past. And so I had this weird, and I was also doing psychedelics and exploring, you know, my altered states of consciousness. But, um, like, it's really weird to try to share with people, but like the entirety of my circle for probably about four or five years was like six people. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in my house often, you know, like I, I, I wasn't going to parties. I, I didn't have a job. Yeah. I was just going to school and I wasn't talking to anyone at school. Yeah. How do you think that that connects to how you make sense of things now? There's, um, I can feel that within the last two years, there's been a deep call to like enter the fray and like mm-hmm. enter the game um, because it feels like I'm at a level of competence and also just a place in my personal development where it feels yeah. like this is the right way to orient to the world. Um, but it, like it feels like my core especially because like my my dive into psychology and philosophy was all around you know like what's cognition what's epistemology how do we know that we know and we have really good cognitive psych- psychological research where it's like you don't know and yeah. the degrees to which you don't know and the biases and the cognitive distortions that you come into the world with programmed into you by evolution to function totally. really gets in the way of you. So there is this uh, simultaneous massive humility because of what I've studied. Almost so much humility that it can create psychosis which is a whole thing that we can go into yeah. in tandem with, um, you know, there is a core part of me that was arrogant and still on some degree somewhere in my shadow probably is arrogant in the sense of like, I don't feel like I have to prove myself to anyone intellectually. So there's this lack of desire to try to be a thing, to be seen a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that gives me a certain level of freedom. But really what it feels yeah. like is it feels like um, I don't have a preset magnet inside of me that is yeah. very strong that will try to bring me to one side or the other. Of course, I think that there's a interesting biological argument about the preset magnet that you have inside of you that pulls you to one side. Um, but I think that mine is... 
less than averagely charged. And there's a quick asterisk on the side. Are you familiar with Jonathan Haidt's work on the six moral taste buds? No, I don't think so. There's a book called The Righteous Mind and Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, I believe, is uh, one of the most cited um, social psychologists that's you know currently in the dance. And he wrote this book called The Righteous Mind where he looked through the research and essentially makes the argument that there are six moral taste buds that humans have evolved to care about and that there's a dispersion like through the lineages of how these six moral taste buds are like, what's the intensity of their preferences inside of each individual in the same way that the most a uh, scientifically robust personality model is the big five trait mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, those five traits can disperse in the individual in different intensities. And that makes up kind of the core characteristics of their personality. So these six moral taste buds, um, there's decent tests that can be done where they can, you know, see what your preferences are on these six dimensions. And that I don't, it's been about five years since I've looked at the research, yeah, but yeah. the confidence uh, interval of um, which taste buds about basically if you score high on these three, you're going to identify as right politically. Mm-hmm. And if you identify with these three, you're going to identify with the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me look up what these are um so i don't misquote it but uh it's super fascinating um no i want to check it out just while you're looking that up uh you know you often come from things from the perspective of sort of the evolutionary uh hard wiring not surprisingly i come from the social and cultural influences uh some of what i hear in your story is different in mind but similar result in that there's something about you know not taking in a constant bombardment of sort of popular culture news um that i'd argue created some really healthy uh anti-social behavior <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah when by that i mean you know yeah. people always asking us if ffs is a cult and we say well culture is a cult yeah. right and it really is right which is to say i think some of that freedom you know, that you have some of that ability to look is that you were not sort of forced to be molded in a certain way um, that lots of other folks get in that, that, that formative set of experiences. Um, I just, I wanted to ask you though, before you do that, like you, you talked about living alone in a house, opioids, your relationship with your body. And then you talked to me about how you were drawn to Aristotelian ideals. And I just wondered like, how did that time feel? Mm. And how did that, like, yeah. how do you think how that time felt connects to to how you make sense of these things today? Mm-hmm. It's a real, it's not a leading question. I don't know. Uh, I don't have a presumption. I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. Um, you know, at that age, there was a deep desire to like find a meaningful place in life. Period. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because if you identify as an atheist and a skeptic, uh, 
you you're going to need to figure out how to provide meaning in your life where your psyche is going to tear itself apart yeah and um basketball was my was my religion you know it it was the thing that gave the atheist skeptic inside of me meaning that couldn't be argued with because it was a felt sense of meaning right there yeah and then once you know, and then my entire future was built off the activity that generated that meaning. I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player. And then you have your shoulder surgically repaired and, you know, you can't afford rehab. You, you know, you can't drive. It's hard for you to do anything. Uh, that, you know, I, f- I fell into a depression. Yeah. And, uh, I also, once I started college, I had this opportunity, like I had never had to try in school. And because I could argue with the teachers, I thought I was the smartest person in the school. And then once I got to college, my first year of classes, especially the science classes, didn't give a fuck about how charismatic I was. Yep. Didn't give a fuck. You found the hard sciences disappointing in that regard. (laughs) (laughs) And that, um, I ended up dropping out of all my classes my freshman year and ended with a 0.7 GPA and thought I was going to be expelled. But because my mom gave me her GI bill, the school was getting paid. Mm-hmm. And so I, their rule was if your GPA was below 1.0 that you were expelled. Um, but they just didn't see it. And so I had this weird... I basically had like a religious moment at the end of my freshman year where I realized that if I don't fucking get my shit together, I'm going to ruin my life and the opportunities I've been given. And then that's when I turned into this insane thing that from the outside looked like someone who was bordering on psychosis Mm -hmm. with the amount of, um, I just wouldn't fuck with people. I wouldn't do anything other than read and study and try to meditate and try to work out. And I would read all day. I would watch lectures at night. If one of my roommates had friends over, I wouldn't interact with them at all. Um, And in that time, what it felt like to my conscious mind was, you know, um, I was trying to break out of the gravitational pull of the common life that I saw was the destiny of almost everyone that I grew up with. And I didn't want that. I just did not fucking want that. And I was willing to work hard to not be there. But in hindsight, with the awareness I have now, what I could see is I was hiding a lie. And it was me dropping out of my classes that disconnected me from everyone around me. And I was frantically trying to fix reality in a way where I would never have to tell that lie. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense, man. That, I mean, that really, that resonates with me in, in so many ways, right? Like I, I mean, I, I was first in family to go to college. I was always the smartest, you know, that was my whole identity. And, uh, you know, it turned out these motherfuckers were like, you know, much more prepared for university <laughs> life than I was. And uh, I almost got kicked out of Brandeis. And mm. I, I think I made the dean cry using my manipulative charisma to stay in school. Um, but I don't know. I hear the other echoes I hear. You know, I was told my whole life implicitly and explicitly, you will never be able to do X. And then I did 
everything possible to prove that not only I could do X, but Y and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that led to a lot of things that are another story, but at the core of it, you know, uh, I think it, it was both very lonely and I was trying very hard to keep myself safe and to be okay and to not explicate how disconnected I was from everyone else. And there yeah. was also just this, this desire, you know, this, what is nostalgia is like a desire for home, for your home. Mm. I feel like I have a nostalgia for a home I've never known wow. um, and never experienced. And I experienced, but I experienced pieces of it amidst, you know, folks that, you know, have a, a really hard left set of politics. I experienced pieces of it amongst folks that have a really different farther right set of politics. And I, I just think there's just such like, mm, I think I have this desire for us to, 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 to claim our collective humanity and to create a sort of space where all of us can be fully seen. Um, I think because I want to be fully seen. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of it. And I just, you know, you just talked about the, the, you know, the, the, the test that sort of with a fairly high degree of confidence rating says whether we land right or whether we went left, you know, it, it just really quick, you know, it used to be that it, first of all, the most meaningful things I've ever done that have really mattered have been with people that have really different politics than me. Um, and that we found a way to figure stuff out together, you know, after hurricane Katrina in Louisiana and, and lots and lots of places where there was a moment where we could just come together and we could figure things out. Um, and you know, it used to be that you, t- you tended to be the most likely reason you were a Republican or a Democrat is because your parents were a Republican or Democrat. Right. right. Um, that was, that was sort of how a lot of how that, that landed in terms of the U S partisan identity. One of the things that, you know, I just think it's worth noticing is there's this political science, uh, uh, survey they do every year. They've done it forever. And one of the questions they ask is, um, would you care if your child married, uh, someone of the opposite political party? Right. And they ask the same questions about religion, race, etc. In the United States, almost nobody has ever cared too much if their child married someone of the opposite political party. We care a lot now um, about that. That the number has really gone up. But the interesting thing is that it's not that people are identifying more deeply as a Democrat or more deeply as a Republican. Right. It's that they they are fearful and 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 uh, they hate the other party more. Yep. Right. That there's something about this other party. So it's a negative partisanship. So yeah. it's not like in these identities that we're finding, we're finding commonality and connection and belonging, but it's that we don't, there's something so threatening about the other side that we have to band together. And I say all that to say that I just think underneath all this stuff, all these fancy numbers that I look at all day about numbers and the polls and what's happening to the electorate, it's really, you know, it's a story of all of us trying, I think, you know, to realize our full humanity, to find a place that we can be our full selves, to belong and to be safe. And I think the thing, I think that, you know, the sort of modern consulting class and a lot of politicians exploit that, you know, and our culture exploits that. And and it's a big part of why we have so much depression and so much anxiety and so much loneliness, you know? And, you know, so that's why it's not just that I think we got to figure out how to talk to each other and hold each other's humanity, you know, so we can solve the fact that our planet is dying, which is certainly the case and certainly true. Yeah. But it's also because the the sheer amount of profound pain and suffering that not being able to be in relationship with each other across difference causes all of us. Right. Um, I, I know what that pain feels like. Right. 
Um, and I think that like what moves me is a desire to, to, to lessen that pain, to invite others to collectively lessen that pain, to be revolutionaries like you're talking about, because actually that's when I think like our brilliance can be unleashed. It's, it's not really because like, you know, you got some interesting things to say, we got different data sources and that and that we come together and, you know, I don't know, we'll solve all the problems, but it's, it's actually just when people come together and they're, they can, they've seen, they can see the other be our full selves. Um, which by the way, doesn't mean safe. I'm not talking about no. creating safe spaces. I'm talking about creating authentic places where we hold each other's humanity. That's when we will be able to, you know, unleash all of what's sort of really possible. So that's, yeah. that's, what's motivating to me. And that's just those, that story you told, like, you know, that's all of our stories, you know, yeah. um, in the way. There's a couple of things. One is, um, it would be cool if we aspire to create evolutionary spaces as opposed to safe spaces because yeah. like I, I am an amoeba and I need some help. So yes, I would like an evolutionary space. Yeah. You know that like uh, what you're doing with a garden is you're not creating quote unquote safe as much as you're creating a place where the will of life to transform and die and be reborn beautiful is yes. supported. That's right. And there's something implied about safe where it's like, let's not die. Yeah, that's a thousand percent right. Fertile preconditions for possibility. Yeah, right? I love that. So um, the sharing the six moral taste buds will actually uh, go into the exiling language that we talked about in the previous one that we haven't got into that feels like it's super important here. And so one of the like models that I think is really helpful for uh, all of us to kind of like understand is that our brain has been trying to solve a reality problem, you know, for as soon as we got eyeballs, but like as soon as our body, as soon as our evolutionary line chose to move instead of to stay still. So that's the separation between like plants and animals to, to survive our nervous system has been trying to figure out how do we use our limited resources and the fact that we have to eat to get more resources to represent a model of reality that we can move through so that we don't die before we're able to reproduce. Like that's like the primordial question. And that uh, if we zoom ahead, you know, a couple million years, we got to the point where we're this social animal that lives in groups, that has this type of nervous system, that has these type of eyes, these type of ears, et cetera. And one of the like primary like cognitive conditions that we're trying to solve is how do we interact with the other? So we got to a point in our evolutionary history where there were enough of our type of things where we could grow up inside of a group where we knew everyone a part of that group for a long time. But every once in a while, there would be a different us that would come meet us at our borders and would either trade with us or could bring us new ideas or new healing or new like hunting skills, but also could bring with them disease and war. And so there's this, there is a really good um, cognitive psychologist out of the University of Toronto named uh, John Bervakey has this long uh, hypothesis that like the origins of consciousness, of self-aware consciousness, 
came from trying to solve this problem of how to interact with the other. And that the first set of like cultural rituals um, that we tried to figure out was quote unquote trade rituals, which is mm. what are the set of rules that we will run to try to interact with the other? Because they represent both all the things we don't know and they could represent death and the destruction of our people. And that that led to us basically having to create initiatory rituals to bind our group yeah. in the face of interacting with the persuasive culture of this other group. Mm-hmm. And that mm. um, if you feel into your felt experience is that most of the people that you don't agree with, you know, like if you're on the left and they're on the right, uh, you likely have very few friends that you interact with from a nervous system to a nervous system. And so they're this ephemeral other. And one of the things that Jungian psychology really makes potent is you are way more than what you think you are. And you have a shadow. You have within you the capability of being all the things that you detest. And that if you don't own that on some conscious level, you will find a thing to project that onto. Mm. And that one of the things that I see is that there's this thing that I'm calling exiling language, where we begin to use words that represent to us that there is this other and that the other is outside of our sphere. It's outside of our tribe, therefore outside of our realm of compassion outside of our realm of respect. And the really interesting thing is like, quote unquote, cancel culture is when you start to use exiling language on one of the members of your own group to try to get them totally. extracted out of your group. And that in evolutionary history, if you were exiled from your tribe, you would almost certainly die. And so like one of the things that I wrote in an article I wrote recently is that Exiling language is literally the grammar of death sentences. You know, like they are sentences that have like built into them the will to kill, you know, and, the, and that, that's dramatic. But I think it's the very beginning of that spectrum. That's right, man. And that one of the things that we're seeing is it's like people are so quick now to use exiling language on people to the point where it allows them to be cruel to them. It allows them to be violent to them. It allows them to be um, inhumane to them. And that one of the things that I'm trying to cultivate with the people who pay attention to the things that I say is you do this, you do this, I do this. I invite you to, to begin to track when you do this and try to do it less. And um, the six moral taste buds go back to this like primal tension within a lineage, which is like you want some people to have a disposition to trusting the other. And you want some of your lineage to have a disposition to not trusting the other and that the tension between those two maintain the integrity of your lineage. And so these six taste buds are... Um, each of them have a like pole on the left or a pole on the, or 
Each of these have two poles. So the first one is care slash harm. The next one is fairness slash cheating. The third one is loyalty slash betrayal. The fourth one is authority slash subversion. The fifth one is sanctity slash degradation. And the last one is liberty slash oppression. And the really interesting thing is I believe the care, harm, fairness, cheating, and loyalty, betrayal uh, tend to aggregate for people who will uh, identify on the left. And the authority, subversion, sanctity, and denigration, and liberty and oppression tend to aggregate on the right. Mm-hmm. And that the argument is that the reason this shows up in like every culture on some level is because the dynamic tension between these two poles, really the dynamic tension between these six poles, allow for an equilibrium that is yeah, optimal yeah. in like yeah. the evolutionary process of a lineage. And just a quick side note, this will be geeky for the people who are interested in like uh, evolutionary psychology slash evolutionary biology. A big debate that's been going on for over 100 years is um, group selection versus individual gene selection. And the argument for a long time has been group selection is not possible. And that uh, Brett Weinstein uh, is an evolutionary biologist who has proposed this really beautiful synthesis that I resonate with. And it's that, like, one of the reasons why the debate's been going on for so long is because there are clearly tendencies that don't seem to square with the gene selection argument and that seem to support this group selection argument, but that what we know about the technicalities of how mutation and evolutionary and how evolution works is that it's on the gene level is that um, genes of the individual are genetically linked to a lineage. And that that's how some of these uh, phenomena that we think are evidence for group selection would play out. And so that's why I'm saying lineage as a group, as opposed to a cultural group. Mm Because in evolutionary biology, a cultural group can't interact directly on the gene level. And just to get one more iota technical and geeky for the people who are interested in this is that our genes within the last 100 years have found themselves in a situation where the genes that are selected for are now influenced by how they interact with the cultural zeitgeist. And so as soon as culture and language emerged, it began to have a selective pressure on genes that started to give us some of these phenomena that we call like group selection. And so actually, you know, there's the biological substrate. And then as soon as we got language and culture, now there's two evolutionary lines that can feed off of each other. And it's done a lot of really interesting thing to our evolutionary unfolding for the last 100,000 years. Yeah, man. I loved what you said about, um, when you talk about exiling, just going back to exiling language, um, you know, I think I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I, I'll take the and, and and just this idea that we need each other, right? That actually, yeah. like, we actually need difference, and that difference needs to be in a container that allows for contending and, and synthesis and struggle. Um, 
in order to fully realize, you know, what's, what's possible. Uh, it's like, we're, we're made for that. And, you know, I think, I believe that deeply. I think about, um, you know, you know, societies are just like complicated people. And I feel like, you know, you think about something, you pick something from my world, uh, like the, the Me Too movement, right? It's a movement. Let's just pick something non-controversial like rape culture. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, we'll do Israel Palestine next. It's fine. Um, it's in vaccinations. It's, uh, I think of it as a, uh, anytime uh, a need that hasn't been articulated uh, before in our collective consciousness, just like anytime a human being articulates a need yes. in our interpersonal dynamic for the first time, uh, it comes out rough. Yeah, It, it comes out um, binary and, and, and more rigid. Um, it creates good objects and bad objects, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I have felt and, you know, deeply committed to the dismantling of rape culture. It's a real phenomena. And I think some of our... Uh, cultural discourse about the Me Too movement, I mean, I just felt, you know, there are just moments where we would equate radically different situations and radically different behavior as monstrous. Um, uh, one, and two, we would act, any, act as if anyone who had transgressed in any number of ways as an irredeemable, almost unfathomable monstrosity. And that's the key word, irredeemable. As yeah, in yeah, no, that's right. No hope and no possibility for redemption. No I. hope, no exile. No, no hope, no possibility for redemption. And by being a bad object, having nothing to do with us, because certainly all the sex everyone who's listening to this podcast has ever had, and all the sex I've had has been, you know, the epitome of perfect sober consent. Of course not, right? It's messy. It's complicated, um, and it's something we're struggling through. And so there's this this thing where we just create these bad objects we make we, we remove folks humanity we make them irredeemable um and somehow it's like that keeps us safe but actually it's really really dangerous but i say that to say uh, when a need is first uttered it comes out rough 100%. right and the need within which the container within which that need is articulated matters a ton right and you know it's the same as you know you know the number of really we talk about a lot we talk a lot about but non-educated college whites and their support for Trump, right? Um, and I, I have to say the so many times uh, folks that, that have that experience are, are treated as trash, frankly, uh, including by the left, uh, especially by the left. I'm, but, and, and rather than understanding the articulation of a need, right, of a, of a very real uh, felt lived actual experience you know i'm trans and we talk a lot about the uh, i've gone to a lot of uh like i come from a foreign work class family and i'm trans and so all those things together means i go to a lot of funerals right funerals of young people but you know wow. another group of folks that have an incredibly high suicide rate in our country are, are white men um yeah. and i say that to say that if you can't get down with the idea that this need that this pain that this articulated grievance is a real powerful legitimate thing that as a human being I, I want to understand and I want to I want to lean into um then we've really missed something right so so I say all that to say that like on all the different sides of the aisle there there is a collective attempt to articulate a need uh, a grievance uh an experience 
the container in which that need, experience, whatever is, is, is articulated, what happens next matters a ton. 100%. And, and what, what is happening now more and more is, is this, instead of moving through good objects and bad objects to nuance and synthesis yeah. and understanding to this idea, you know, Eric, I, there's a poem by Rumi. I was like nine and it's a, uh, it's wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Come, come again. Even if you've broken your vows a thousand times, come, come again. And that poem has stayed with me forever is it's a poem that not in a way embraces redemption, but at the same time says there's no need for redemption, right? Because actually this is the cycle of life. Like we will all break our vows a thousand times and we must be able to be welcomed home. Um, that's the container that, that I think that we need to create um, yeah. for folks. And that, that's what I'm really invested in. You know, there's, there's this in a, I think it's an exodus, but you know, there's a story of like Moses um, and, you know, folks worship the calf and everyone got really upset and he had to come back down from the mountain, and do a thing, pray for his people. But then he does this wild thing where he, it's like, in Hebrew, it's he goes outside of the camp, right? It's unthinkable, right? To pitch your tent outside of the camp. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of different theories on, on what that was about. But, but some people argue that what that was about is it was, Moses had already prayed for mercy for the people, but Many people argue that, that some people argue that this is his most audacious prayer by saying he needed to remove himself for the people to have an unmitigated experience of God. Right. And I say that to say that, like, I think we are in a time uh, and I'm an, uh, what is it? An agnostic, right? Like, I'm like, ah, I don't know. I'm, really <laughs> open to it, but I'm not sure. I'd, I'd be into it. But, but in, in, a, in, a, in a broadly construed sense, I think we're in a time where we need like a new set of audacious prayers where mm. we have to go mm. outside of our camps. Um, create a different sort of vlogging, a different God, sort of community. Um, and I think that's what, you know, like Charles Isaacson is talking about. Like, it is not surprising that the old story doesn't work anymore because there are many of us, many of the people that are listening to this podcast, Eric, and I know you, that those binary good object, bad object, like it just, we just know it's not right. We know it's not true. We know that we won't find home and belonging and possibility there. Mm. Um, and so I just think that, you know, building that new story, creating those new binding rituals, a little bit, it's like, uh, how do we go outside of the camp and create something new? And actually, uh, and it's not surprising that that is in the book of Exodus, which is a story of liberation, <laughs> right? I'm just saying. I'm just putting that. I love uh, that. Yeah. And I just, you know, I don't know, at some point, I think to the point of the container, we should just get clear on like, to what end? So what does it mean to create uh, a new camp? Or what does it mean? Uh, to create a container, like why, you know, and then how do we do it? And, you know, Eric, we should try, we should talk about something upsetting, like COVID or cancel culture or transgender yeah. people uh, or something like that to just, to, 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 to get clear on to what end yep. and, and how, and what it looks like. Yep. Uh, and then what's possible yeah. if, if more of us can do it. You shared a bunch of things that I really resonated with. And uh, new stories for a new set of audacious prayers is yeah. massive. Another thing I really want to highlight is uh, culture and society and tribes reflect the same dynamics of the individual. And that uh, one of the things everyone can connect to is you will get to a point doing, quote unquote, the work on yourself where you're going to realize that you have unmet needs that you've never asked people close to you to provide. And when you try to articulate that, which is really the birthing of starting to create new boundaries in your life, 
one, it's going to transform you. It's going to transform them, or it will at least invite the potential for transformation, which will feel really uncomfortable. You're likely not going to be good at it when you first try it, and it's going to require test, quote unquote, failing, which is really just getting back data and then retesting and then failing and then retesting and constantly getting a little bit better and better. And the core thing that I see is you want the goal is to bring the person that you're contending with into your, your sphere mm-hmm. of compassion and intimacy. And that in order to do that, you know, let's transform grievance into grief. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, man. People, yeah. all of us, have unprocessed grief. And to the degree that you have unprocessed grief is the degree that you are not fully alive. And the degree that you are not fully alive is the degree to which you are not yet capable of being intimate. And that your fundamental need is intimacy. We are fundamentally intimate beings. You know, the number one predictor for early death is the felt sense of loneliness. It's, it's, it has a higher impact on all-cause mortality than being obese, than uh, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, than being an alcoholic, and of living in a place with high air pollution. It's the felt sense of loneliness. And loneliness is not the same as isolation. That most people who report, report being lonely uh, are around other people. But what creates the felt sense of loneliness is that you don't feel truly seen by somebody. And that what allows for being seen is intimacy. And what allows for intimacy is vulnerability. And what allows for vulnerability is can you bring your grief into your awareness and process it? And so it feels like the invitation for the you know, new story or the new container is to bring the person that you're contending with into your sphere of intimacy. And so with that groundwork, uh, let's give the people a demonstration and let's try to talk about something. Let's do it. Yeah. I just, real quick before we talk about something, it makes me, make me think about you know Gandhi's work with Satyagraha. I don't know if you're familiar, but just, just this idea of like our containers are set up uh, uh, for grievances, right? And and look, there's a certain type of feeling and belonging we get through grievances, through othering. It is not nothing. It is a powerful force. Uh, but there's something so much more powerful, so much, the thing that gets to, it doesn't actually upend loneliness, right? It's like a temporary ret- reprieve. It's like, a, uh, you know, it's like any of the things. It's like, yeah, you can use all kinds of things to, to, to get a reprieve. Um, what you're talking about is I think the real invitation of the new story, just like you said, to, to, to bring our grief, to bring our wounds, to bring our truth. Um, that's what's transformative. And that's how we are seen and can see others. I just have to say, I was having this conversation with this young person the other day. who's uh, they want to be an organizer and they are terrible at listening. And we had this whole sort of conversation. I said, finally, you know, are you curious about people? Like, do you, do you want to listen? I said, I don't know. Which I thought was really brave, really brave thing mm. to say. Um, 
very uh in this world right mm-hmm. uh but what it got down to is the reason they didn't know if they were curious about people the reason why they didn't know uh if they could listen i asked them do they think that had anything to do with intimacy because listening is one of the prerequisites for the possibility yep. of intimacy you're really letting someone else in and what was getting in their way were these old untended wounds uh, and their belief about what they had to do to keep themselves safe. Yeah. And, and now they have choices on what they want to do with that. But I, I just think it's, it's kind of all of our stories, you know? But yeah. yeah let's, let's, let's get into something. One other thing that feels important to articulate is um, if you have a category or an accusation that implies in your view that the, if the accusation is true, they're unredeemable. The other is unredeemable. Absolutely. The only option for the other is to fight. That's right. That if there's no, there's a great quote by, uh, I forget who wrote the uh, Art of War, but there's this idea of build a golden bridge for your enemy to surrender over. Mm, Absolutely. And it's the idea of give the other the opportunity for redemption. And the only asterisk that I would offer there is we do live in a world where people, for whatever reason, you know, their genes collided with their life experiences in a way where the choices that they will make, almost irregardless of what you say or do, are egregious and violent. It's why we have a court system and it's why we have prisons. And that there are people who you can allow them to be redeemed in the privacy of your own heart, but they also need to be put in jail. And I think that the sliver of the people in our jails that deserve that, you know, it's, we have way too many people in jail that don't deserve to be in jail, but that we do live in a type of culture where there are people who, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you say, they're going to kill or they're going to rape or they're going to infringe on people's safety and freedom. But almost anyone you've ever met does not fall into that category. And God bless the people who have actually met people that fall into that category. And that this is not, these conversations are not for those specific types of people. But that the invitation is that almost everyone that you've ever met that you've used exiling language on or that you've used the unredeemable ac- accusation for does not fall into that category. And we're going to assume you know, in the conversation that you and I are having about whatever that we're going to talk about is that the other is, has the potential to be redeemed if it acquires that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, uh, I think the, the deep point that I hear you saying there is, I mean, it's sort of like a political epigenetics, right? And I think we're trying to create a different sort of possibility, uh, sort of through culture and practice, um, for all these pieces. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if uh, prisons and the criminal justice system are the answer, but certainly I agree that uh, folks need to draw boundaries, right? Because the other thing is, some folks are not. You have to have consent in a way, right? And some folks are not ready for these sort of conversations and, and aren't open to it. It's so countercultural. But why don't we try to change that by trying to have one? What do you want to instead of just mucking around in the abstract as we like to do? What should we talk about? What's a uh, what's on your mind? What do you? You want to feel into today, Eric, to borrow language from? I think um, 
if I'm being vulnerable, it feels like you have a closer sense of something that we might deeply disagree on than I do. Um, and so I would invite you to feel into what's something that you think you and I uh, passionately disagree on. Oh, no, I don't. Are there things we disagree on? Um, I think there might be some things that we see differently or that are charged, right? I mean, the things that we've talked about in passing is uh, we've talked about COVID and vaccinations. We've talked about uh, trans, transgender rights. I don't necessarily think that that's something we disagree on, but it's something that we maybe we do. We come from really different places and different experiences, and it's a really charged topic where if you get it wrong, you're immediately exiled right. um, in my world. Uh, uh, cancel culture. I mean, I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's something we deeply disagree on. Is there? I don't know. Um, I think we might disagree on some tenets of evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's probably like nuances about, uh, trans policy slash trans culture that feel like uh, we could get into some scary places for my nervous system and maybe for yours. Um, Cool. So you just hit me up in the chat and say... uh, Trans people, let's do it. Cool. So um, I guess I'll start. Uh, And and to what end, right? Like, what are we trying to do here to... For me, what my goal would be is to uh, have a deeper understanding of um, what the trans community experiences, what their grievances are, and what their asks or desires are. Um, You know, because by just disposition of, I think, what other people would label me, you know, as a cis white male, uh, you know, who is a part of the, depending on, uh, what words want to be used as a part of the patriarchy, um, that, you know, it could get interesting and contentious. So I think that that's, uh, what we could do. Yeah, I love that. I think that the thing that I want to that that I want to do is I think one of the things we do is we create sort of talking points in our movement, right? And then we ask folks to sort of internalize those talking points. And if you don't hew to them, you're uh, you're you're not sort of being loyal. And so, like, what I'm interested in is having a full conversation with my friend and someone that I love and and and, and trust, and want to have a want to create a garden uh, of authentic exchange um, to to not like lean on the talking points I've often written, um, but to tell you the truth of, of my experience and to, to ask you questions about your work. So. Beautiful. And what I'm also interested in is uh, what are those quote unquote implicit rules that if a uh, cis, no, no, I'll get kicked out. White male, uh, like does not follow that it's seen by trans people as a foul or a uh, transgression. Um, no, that's a great one, yeah. Because I don't know what they are. Like, I know what the straw manning of some people that I follow would say. And I can feel in my nervous system that whenever I hear them talking about it, it feels like it's a straw man and I'm not interested yeah. in that type of... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, same. Yeah. So, 
I'll just start. I'll just start asking questions and we can go from there. Um, I guess the first question for me would be, um, from what you see from me and how I, you know, present myself online and the things I talk about and the things that I do, are there, uh, implicit rules that I'm breaking? Uh, and if so, what would they be? No, I mean, no, I don't honestly with you, Eric, but lots of some of our friends and, and some of the folks that are in the same world as you, um, I think that what I can say is like, uh, I often see trans people and what I, how do I define the world, the odd, odd world that you live in. Um, but, uh, how would you define, uh, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, folks that are certainly seekers, right. Um, folks that are trying to live into the new story, um, folks are often deeply connected to psychedelic world and the world of health. Um, I guess what I, I've seen a lot of, particularly lately, um, is trans people used as a sort of, uh, uh, as a sort of proxy, right, for, for other things and, and other issues. Um, what would be an example? Uh, I can give an example yeah. if it's helpful. But, yeah, um, yeah, so, you know, I, uh, well, you know, there's a conversation the other, the other day with, you know, uh, someone who was giving a talk and, you know, they were talking about, you know, and if you're unhappy these days, you just change your gender. Um, and that is someone in, you know, our collective world who I have a ton of respect and deep love for. Um, and I think that, you know, I thought that was such a cheap move, you know, and, but what I think it's about, I think that they were using that as a, as a way, uh, to talk about sort of bigger issues. And I also think that they, they don't know trans people. Um, and if they did, if they, if they saw sort of the, the struggle and the pain and the suffering and the journey of authenticity that folks were going through. What I know without question is uh, that would that would never that would never occur, right? Yeah. Like they would never even have that frame of reference. Or you know, I like uh, and I, you can delete out the names afterwards, but like I think Carrie Jones or whatever on Instagram. I think she is brilliant, right? She's brilliant, thoughtful, nuanced thinker. I love her stuff. Read her stuff on hormones all the time. Um, and there was a Lancet article a while ago, and you know, some I can't even remember some committee tried to come up with some language uh, about how one would refer to what they were trying to get to is that trans men uh, who were assigned female at birth and are physiologically female, um, uh, you know, needed to be counted in studies that looked at things like endometriosis or whatever relevant things or pregnancy, all those pieces. They were trying to create more inclusive language. And Maybe they did it in a in a ham-fisted way or an overly prescriptive way or not elegant way. Um, but I think I think you know she sort of lifted up the language on Instagram, and, and if you looked at the comments, it was like, you know, like two people trying to have a conversation about what was really happening here, and then like 180 comments that were like, "Why can't we just say women? Women are women," uh, and and it just was like. <sighs> It just, it wasn't like a full conversation and, and trans folks just felt like, it felt like trolling, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Those are some of the things I think about. Yeah. So if I bring it to my experience and what I'm curious about and uh, yeah. what my questions are is, um, 
I guess one is I would love to be educated on, well, I guess there's, so the first thing is uh, whenever I see uh, people who flippantly use that type of uh, rhetorical trans argument, you know, like, yep. why can't we just call a woman a woman? Or, yep. um, you know, if you're unhappy, just switch your gender. My instinct is that there's a deep amount of dismissive cruelty in that and that i've mm -hmm. i've always had that like feeling and that um i think one of the things that i can also see in those people who say that is they feel disoriented and therefore Absolutely. unsafe because yeah. they don't understand like the steel man version of like what the fuck is going on here and i'm gonna try yeah. my best to try to steel man what i think is going on at the core yeah. is that there are a, right. a significant minority of people who grow up in early childhood in a reality tunnel that is almost impossible to appreciate and that from their earliest moments of consciousness, they feel like there is something fundamentally wrong with them. And that if they were to share what is fundamentally wrong with them, there is no safe space for them to share where if they shared it, they would be allowed to quote unquote come home. And so there is a tremendous amount of suffering and grief from the earliest moments in life. And then at some point, they find a community, almost always online, that is the first place where they feel like they can share this feeling and feel like they're a part of a home. And then they're given a set implicitly of um, here are the rules of this tribe to be here. Here are, the, here are the words that we use to understand what's going on. And here are, you know, like here's advice that you can do to start to feel more secure in reality, you know, so you don't kill yourself. So you don't destroy yourself in a way where you can't go on tomorrow. And that, um, those people, you know, start to take on the like words of like, and this is where I would love to be taught. But what I would imagine is that there's something like, um, that hole that you feel has to do with the fact that uh, you are not you are not bound to the physiological body that you've been born into, and that um, you can change that physiological profile to uh, become what you're actually meant to be. And that once you do that, um, a lot of the not at homeness that you feel inside of your body can be healed. Mm -hmm. And that uh and that that is successful for some of those people. And that feels like that's like the beginning root of um what is actually here for trans people. Does that feel mm -hmm. fair? And I'd love to hear. What do you think? 
Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I think that, you know, it's that's true for a lot of people that they know from an early age and have this, you know, consistent experience. Um, it's also true that lots of folks come into this later in life. I didn't come out as trans until I was 31. Um, uh, and lots of folks don't come out until they're much older. So there's lots of sort of paths in. Um, and, you know, I think the only other quick thing I'd say, two quick things. One is that there's what you said about it being disorienting for people, I think is deeply true. Um, and that, you know, we're talking about something that is emergent, dynamic, and contested, at least in modernity, as you know, through thousands of years of almost every culture that exists, including many of the indigenous cultures that, that we lift up um, and honor uh, and learn from, uh, there have always been people uh, that have had identities that are not uh, what we think of as, you know, cis male or cis female. Um, so those happen for as long as there's been people. And uh, what does cis stand for? Or like, what's it mean? Yeah, cis is just a language. So trans means difference and cis means same. So it's to say that your uh, your your felt sense of self connects to your, uh, your physical self. Heard. Um, yeah. And, and folks have very strong feelings about that word. It's something I've learned. Uh, but the other, the other thing that I'd say is, um, you know, there's no agreement in the trans community about what it means to be trans. There are some folks who see it as a, a you know, there are some places in Europe, for example, where, you know, folks are really organized around trans identity as sort of a medical condition. And it's not political or their, their desires for it not to be treated as a political issue at all. And this is just a, a medical condition that we correct shit for change. Um, you know, I fall more in the line of, uh, well, there are other folks that think gender is uh, something we perform socially, right? Which connects to physiology, how we dress, all those types of things, but it's fundamentally um, uh, a social uh, performance. Um, and by performance, I don't mean, uh, I mean the way any of us show up in any kind of space. Right. Um I think for me, this question, and then there's this nature, nurture, blah, blah, blah. Like to me, I just, I'm not wildly interested in those debates. I mean, they're like interesting asides at like, you know, 2 a.m. on the internet. Um, and like, well, I was dating this woman who's a pre-med student. She left me alone with her like CDs because I'm a thousand years old. And I, <laughs> CDs, and I watched one of her videos um, and they talked about hormonal washes uh, in utero. And I was like, oh my God, I had a masculine hormone wash, right? Um, but I don't fucking know. Uh, point being like, there's lots of different theories about like what's there there and there's no agreement, but of course it's disorienting. Um, and of course it's confusing to other folks. And I would just say that like, you know, one of the things that I want that I, that I think is so important to shift and change is that if you're outside of this community and you're trying to make sense of it, that it's okay to be trying to make sense of it. Um, and to not know. And, and frankly, I, I think it's okay uh, to disagree with, uh, uh, with the sort of areas where there are consensus in the community. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to dehumanize me or take away, you know, rights or pass laws that are, you know, there's this real obsession with passing laws about restrooms, which I have to tell you, it is to my deep sadness that one of our core civil rights struggles is about restrooms. Like I just wanted more for my people. Um, but also like just on that point, I'd say, to this obsession with this question of like pronouns and language and bathrooms um, is really like missing the forest for the trees. Like the thing that I like to center is there's no 
one trans community. There are many trans communities. I am an upper middle class white trans guy. My life is radically different uh, than the vast majority of trans folks in our communities. Something like the average like amount of money a trans person makes is like $10,000 a year. What, what black and brown trans folks go through in terms of like violence and discrimination um, on a daily basis, yeah. like blows my mind. You know, everyone's obsessed with this word Latinx, right? Like the, I'm on this email thread and like every other day, someone's like, I hate this word. And the, you know, they're going on and on about how horrifying it is or using they, them, right? Like it's, by the way, these are folks who do not know what a dangling past participle is or know where to put a semicolon in, but all of a sudden they, it's very important and disruptive to their sense of grammar and order. But leaving that aside, to me, the thing that's underneath that, the thing that people are missing, um, like with Latinx, like, okay, like you are bothered by this language. It's deeply upsetting to you. I don't want to hear about that. But to me, you miss a whole story about what does it mean for a group of folks who don't have a ton of power and who struggle with tremendous violence, like every day to find a name in which they find some power, right? Some sense of power and connection to others. No, you can still hate the word Latinx. Um, you can still hate they, them. But I, I just want to invite folks to, understand, to be open and to understand that full story of the thing that's unfolding, you know, before us. So. Yeah. So the question that comes up for me is, um, you said that uh, it wasn't until you were 31 that you entered into the trans community. Is that how you worded it? I don't know. I like the idea. I like to think of me like in some sort of, uh, I don't know, like a coach with horses entering into the community. But yeah, I came out as trans when I was 31. Heard. Came out as trans. Um, The question, and I think that will really help me like anchor to your experiences. What was the need? that wasn't being met for 31 years that then felt like it was met by coming out as trans and what your experience was like before you learned that this was a thing that you could come out as? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, first of all, all the stories that I heard about trans folks, like when I was in college was the story of when I was three years old, right? And the sort of real clear narrative of, of sense of identity and sense of self. And, and that wasn't my story. Um, uh, and might, might've been because there were a lot of other, I was contending with other issues of survival and other things were happening, but for whatever reason, that, that wasn't my story. You know, I identified as just like, I was just a butch dyke and I was able to, you know, wear the clothes that I was comfortable in and, you know, uh, much to my continual surprise, the women that I really wanted to date wanted to date me. Uh, and I was, you know, able to be a part of a broader community, um, which included the LGBTQ community. And it was just good enough, right? Like it just, it worked. Um, and it was sort of like, you know, when I, when I was younger, you know, uh, my mom, they grew up in a pretty violent household in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that was most strictly policed was gender. Um, and my mother, you know, I think at a deep level, really believed that the only way for a woman to be safe, my mother's going to kill me, by the way, she's still alive. Hey, mom, um, was to, uh, was to uh, capture a man's attention. That, yeah. that would make her safe. Yeah. And from a very young age, I was like a total tomboy, right? Like I would just come home covered in mud. I'd won King of the Mountain. I made some boy cry, <laughs> right? And this was a horror to my mother. Mm-hmm. I, you know, 
and 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 it was strictly enforced in many ways. I used to go to school with a backpack with boys clothes on um, uh, to change into it. And when I got caught doing that, it was there was hell to pay without question. So I say all that to say that, you know, when I got to college, I was able to come out as, and it was connected to being queer, right? Like I just, uh, I've always loved women. I've just found them broadly more interesting and attractive than men. And it is a great testament, Eric, to your, uh, you know, transcending goodness that like, I want to be your friend. <laughs> we were watching a movie the other night and my you know, partner was like, wow, you must really like this movie. And I was like, why? And she's like, what's all men and men bore you. And I was like, it's a really good movie. <laughs> anyway, um, Compliment taken. Queer. Yeah, yeah, no, let's take it back. Uh, and it, uh, and so it just worked and it felt so amazing that I could, like, that was enough. Like I was like, I could sort of be who I was, date who I wanted, you know, dress the way I wanted. And I was, you know, I was 31. I was sort of at the, the i just become, I think, the deputy national political director. I just got landed this big job dating this beautiful woman and really nice place, awesome dog. Um, and, you know, there was just still something deep within me that didn't feel quite right. And it was actually the woman that I was dating who said, well, a number of folks had raised it over the years. And this woman I was dating who said, you know, do you ever think that you might be trans? And I was like, absolutely not. Um, Can and, I ask you a quick question? Uh, yeah. What was some of the things that didn't feel right that she could see or track that had her ask that question? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I had this I had this therapist once that most of the women that I've dated have been straight or have identified as straight before they dated me. Um, and, you know, the therapist was like, well, they just saw something you didn't see, uh, which I thought was interesting. You know, I should ask Nick uh, what it was that she saw in particular. Um, and just real but quick, think, what were you implying by what the therapist was implying by saying that they saw something that you didn't see? The therapist was implying that straight women dated, were drawn to me because they read me at some level mm. energetically as male. Mm. And uh, and this is when I was like, why do I only date straight women? Like, what is that about? Uh, and so I thought that was interesting. But I don't know. I mean, I think that she, I don't know the answer to that. I have to, I have to ask her, but I tried it on, you know, I thought about it. The only trans people I had met up until that point in my life, I heard the stories in college and were really different than, than me. Um, uh, they weren't folks that I could identify with, or I could see myself reflected in. And, uh, you know, and the reason I had such a negative reaction was I just was like, ugh, like, have enough marginalized identities to contend with like we do not need to like add this one to the to the you know like there's enough right. going on i'm 31 like i have this like really sort of important very public in my world public facing job it just felt oh exhausting like something i couldn't possibly contend with um you know and then i just really sat with it and i you know i realized in all the things that i had made choices about in my life like was i really going to just reject this idea because it was so threatening to me because it seemed so inconvenient and scary mm. or was I going to allow myself to sit with it and explore that? Um, and I did. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, what I can say is that over time, it was a huge part of my journey to like really love myself and see myself and accept myself. And I think that was one of the, the underlying needs. Um, Things for a long time I just took good enough or better than I thought it could be mm. as sufficient in terms of the way I made choices about my life. Because I had always thought I 
didn't think I'd be allowed to date women. Like, I was like, this is great. I'll take it. Like, let's just call it good. Uh, or, you know, wear, you know, clothes that felt comfortable. And so it was sort of one of the first choices in my life that I consciously made that was about authenticity and truth and what I wanted and who I was rather than uh, what was so much better than I thought I could ever have. Um, and yeah, and, you know, I have to say just really quickly, you know, uh, particularly younger generations, but people have a lot to say about, or people have very strong feelings about, um, you know, folks identify as non-binary or use they and them pronouns uh, and other pronouns too. But I have to say, like, I think those folks are so incredibly courageous and doing like such important work and they're much braver than me. Um, which is to say, like, do I feel like I am a man? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, and is that because, uh, I don't think that I, I don't feel fully legitimate as a man. Is that what that's about? Is it a sense of inadequacy or questioning? Or is it because actually who I am doesn't quite fit that criteria? I don't know, but I'm tired and I'm 41. And I was like, this is just easier. So no, but truly I'm just going to go with he, him. Um, and I think these other folks, you talk about epistemology, right? You talk about like the creation of the possibility of meaning. Like that's what these folks are doing and they're creating new possibilities of meaning. And I think that is like courageous and really, really important work. You know, back in the day, you, lesbians were, the, the, the way in which folks understood women who were attracted to women was that one woman was a man trapped inside a woman's body and the other person was the real woman. And it wasn't until someone came up with the idea, just the very concept, the possibility that a woman could be attracted to another woman, woman identified woman, that that identity even existed. Like before that, like in modern scientific discourse, um, the only notions of what were possible was uh, was that a woman was trapped? A man was trapped in a woman's body. The other person was a woman. So anyway, I just think that stuff's really courageous, and I, I find it ex exciting and important. And I think we should create lots of ways in which people can be in the world. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing that I don't understand, like at a deep level, like at a deep level, is the. I understand it's disconcerting, confusing. Uh, I understand that folks want to know what's what, and, and especially in a world that's changing so radically, some things have to just be true, right? There has to be some truth that we can count on. I don't understand the level of hatred and fear, not really, not in my heart, right? I understand it intellectually. Um, but, you know, all this talk about, you know, if you're always trying to pass these laws to keep trans women out of bathrooms, as if, uh, you know, the, the people are becoming yep. transitioning to be yep. able to like hurt children. It just, it feels so absurd to me, but I actually think many, it is absurd in fact, but I think many people deeply have this fear. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't actually understand the depth of the anger and the hatred yeah. that this engenders. Or was, bumps, you did it there? I absolutely there? did. And I tried Maybe, to not um, call it. That was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of things. One is, I feel like there might be a word for this, and if there isn't, there should be, but there is a tendency, and it's like contamination bias or something, but um, you can think of the uh, truck convoy incident on one side, and then the Capitol riots on the other side, and it's the sense of, um, within the truck convoy phenomenon, there are like truly peaceful, kind protesters. 
Oh. And there's uh, some small minority of whatever you want to call it, domestic terrorist, uh, blah, blah, blah. And that depending on what frame you're coming from that you want to unconsciously confirm, you will choose the contamination to represent the whole, to dismiss it. And the same thing with the capital incident is that there were peaceful protesters there that were truly in the kindness of their own heart. Not not as a participant, right. as an observer. Yes. And that there was a minority of bad actors, you you could say domestic terrorists. And depending upon what angle you want to look at it at, you could take those small incidences, use it to represent the whole, and then use that to dismiss the the legitimacy of the whole thing. I I know people uh specifically that have a type of personality where they would use the uh, pronoun game as a way to uh, cast blame at the people in their lives that um, are almost always either the, their parents or the family members that they grew up with or the friends that they know, where it's like, you're stupid, you're a bigot, um, and I'm going right. to use this change in my pronoun as a way to fight with you and that uh some people might take that as a representation of the whole and feel like there's a disingenuous game being played against them as a way to um place blame on them and that there's something in our nervous system that feels uh like it's cheated if a person in front of us accuses us of something that insinuates you know that like unredeemable guilt absolutely that we feel is not coming from true vulnerability and that uh the sense of being cheated like triggers something primordial and that feels like that's at least a tendril of this Another thing that I think is uh, less uh, wise sounding, but is intre- incredibly, tremendously powerful, is uh, most of us in Western culture exist inside of a radical history of sexual repression. Thousand percent. And that anything that brings our awareness to the dynamic transformational potential of eros or sexual energy yeah it scares the fuck out of the people who are repressed because the reason they're repressed is because there's things inside of them that they feel shame or guilt about and that any type of character that represents a more free sexual expression and maybe a different way to word it is a less contained sexual expression scares the fuck out of them. And there's a really interesting thing about developmental psychology is that children, I believe between the ages of like three to six, will start to explore their sexuality in a way that is like non-charged with hormones, but that they're curious about it. 
Totally. And girls, uh, on average, will start to masturbate much earlier than boys, but both boys and girls will like explore genitals and spontaneously play games where they like reenact and act out things. And that most parents who are like uneducated in this domain of the human experience, the, like- the moment they see that, they freak out and yeah. their nervous system if it's like an instrument, generates this massive wave of judgment and shame and fear that like the child totally. like absorbs that. Totally. And it creates this like traumatic response. Yeah. And that um, a lot of people who I would imagine are writing these laws and passing these laws, like in the privacy of their own heart, the parts of them that they've repressed, that they think that, you know, whatever the newest frontier of sexual liberation that's happening, they're able to project all the scariest shit on that. Like, I, I, yeah, I think there's, there's deep truth. to A lot of those pieces, Eric, I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, just working backwards. I mean, I, I think this is an example where, sort of the worst tendencies of the right and, and perhaps the left collide in that, you know, unlike, you know, the example of, um, you know, the, the, the riots or whatever, an insert equivalent example on the left, right? right. Which is to say, in many of these things, there, there are uh, a lot of good, good faith actors. There's a lot of folks trying to figure it out. There's usually very few actually uh, malicious, nefarious uh, folks with sort of, you know, bad intent. Um, I think that's broadly true. I think with the issue of like, you know, uh, trans folks and the debate y'all are having right now in Texas and, uh, you know, the bathroom laws, I think that what, what has happened there is, you know, look, some, some of the, uh, ways in which, well, this is, this is what I, what I think is true, um, is that the fear and uncertainty and confusion, um, that is, naturally unleashed sort of psychologically in response to, to, to difference, right? Um, particularly on something so, uh, you know, something that sort of folks, it's a reference point for reality, like gender. Um, I think that, you know, what, what too often happens on the, in some parts of the right is the creation of a, a boogeyman or a specter um, to attach those fears and anxieties and, and, and projections onto you. Um, and, and I say that to say that, like, the reason I use the example of the, the, the bathroom fights is that this is just is objectively not a, uh, a thing that is, that I think, is, is, is happening. Um, uh, in fact, the, well, so one, but then two, I think the way in which, you know, on the left, like, we collude in all of this is suggesting that anyone that has any questions about that or anyone that might find some resonance in that narrative is an idiot or bigot, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we create no possibility and no space for conversation. And frankly, we make it impossible to unpack, uh, you know, what I think is a, a false, but very strategic narrative that's being deployed. And then we all just get stuck. Um, and a quick but thing, I think that yeah, the, oh yeah, no, just the, the old quick thing I'd say is that I think that, uh, yeah, like what you talked about, the regulation of like sexuality and, and gender um, is just like, is, is a really powerful and, and true thing. Um, and I think that when folks uh, 
show another, you know, other possibilities. I think that is deeply, deeply threatening. But I really do think, I think what you said, one of the things that really resonated that you said, I think it is the combination of the the strategic introduction. So there's an introduction of a boogeyman, you know, a, a scary scenario. Um, you know, you can look at it in the South, like when we were dealing with civil rights and the introduction of like black men as sexual predators trying right. to yep. steal white womanhood, right? Um, and then the, I really think that, you know, where we, where we, where, where we make it stuck and impossible to share and have an exchange is, is just when we, when, when, when we write off anyone who finds residence that or has questions, anyone that isn't singing the canon from day one, uh, is, is a bigot or is an idiot or is a fool. I think that is that disdain, which I think we do a lot of on the left, by the way. Um, is so dehumanizing and so dangerous. Um, and it sort of says you're not, I, I mean, look, I, <laughs> friends don't love this, but I really got when, when Hillary Clinton used the term deplorable, right? Like, oof, like that descriptor of a, of a whole group of people, yeah. the, the underlying subtext there, which is the same underlying subtext when anyone has a question about anything about trans stuff, like you're a fucking bigot. Sorry, I don't know if we swore in your podcast, of but <laughs> underneath that, you're not, you are not even worthy to be considered a part of my tribe. Like you are, right. you are, that is the core of exile. And that's wild to me. You know, I don't, I, look, I'm trans and I can barely keep up with it all. And I, I say that, say that like it's emergent, dynamic and contested. I'm learning new things yeah. all the time. The point isn't to be able to sort of quote scripture on this. It's to be able to engage in an honest yep. conversation and try to understand each other. I think the core image that's coming up for me that feels really important to articulate. And again, um, we are image-based beings before we are linguistically expressed yeah. beings. And it has to do with our yeah. evolutionary history. And the metaphors that we use convey a lot about um, our world model that we then tell stories from. And I think most people, if you had them draw a diagram to represent uh, like the left and the right, it would be something like a two-dimensional line with one side on the left and one side on the right. And because our computational capacity is so small that we condense the infinite potentiality of reality down to a really childish mm -hmm. framework that mm -hmm. most people assume there is my camp, which is the right or the left. And then yeah. there is a single, a singular node on the other side mm -hmm. that I fully right. understand yep. and that it's a two dimensional line and where, you know, yes. fighting for how far this line is expressed in the culture the image that comes to mind for me that feels way more true is like there's a image that neuroscientists use to represent all the different regions of the brain and how they intercommunicate with each other. And it's basically like a three-dimensional sphere with over a hundred nodes. And the nodes crisscross in all these different ways depending on what type of consciousness state you're in. The left and the right 
is a three-dimensional sphere with 90 nodes on one side and 90 nodes on the right side. And even that is a simplistic metaphor to represent something much larger. And that the invitation for a conversation with a single individual is to make contact with, of the 90 differentiations of the left, which node am I talking to right now? And can I help them connect to which of the 90 nodes on the right that they think I am one of? Can I help them locate which node I actually am? And that allows for a real conversation between two nodes to happen. And that feels like, because we're coming up at the two-hour mark, that that yeah, feels yeah. like that's maybe the offering metaphor that we can offer to people is disassuage yourself of the illusion that the left and the right is a two-dimensional line with one node on the left and one node on the right because that is your childish crayon drawing that's trying to represent something incredibly potent. And in the spirit of this podcast, you have a thing that you would love to add to that and I can flesh this out. The only thing I would add, I love, I love that and I think that's exactly right. I, I think the... the the, the other core thing that I would offer is that, you know, as adults, we walk around and we articulate our, our beliefs, right? And our policy positions with fancy words and sometimes evidence and data. Um, but the truth is, you know, from everything I understand of everything that's ever been looked at these things in my own lived experience is that actually all of us are a mess of uh, misalignment and incoherence. Yes. Um, and it depends on how you ask question and which they ask it and who's doing the asking. Yep. And that the thing that's underneath, like the thing that's underneath all that are our stories, right? Like our, our lived and our experiences and our feelings. Um, and a politics that demands orthodoxy, a set of beliefs, is a politics that really isn't in any way connected to, to, to us as humans. And, and, and I would argue instead, we need a, a politics of, of orthopraxy or like a set of practices, reflection vulnerability, connection, intimacy. Not to have some namby-pamby, mommy state, safe space uh, situation, but actually to create the possibility of us to actually truly communicate, connect, to get to the root of things, and to together find other possibilities. Um, yeah, so the thing that comes to mind is uh, the spherical image and to recognize that uh, whichever node you are resonating with on this day is the node that you're resonating with on this day. And that the point of conversation is to come from your node, connect to their node, and through vulnerability, start to come towards the center. And the center, I would offer, is a metaphorical fire where transformation and grief can be shared. And that ideally you pass through the middle and you can start to actually be in intimacy with the other side of that node. And I think so yeah. this is the thing that I'm really resonating with, which is every time you have a conversation with someone, imagine that the, that this sphere is every possible identity that exists in the zeitgeist. And at any time you have a conversation with someone, they're a different node. Can the two of you, through vulnerability and uh, grief processing, come closer to the fire in the middle 
where then you can then pass over it and start to move towards their node and be in intimacy with their node. And then it's this sense of discovery. And the invitation is, can you hold assimilating a new node of the zeitgeist through the conversation that you're in? And yeah, you just wrote political alchemy through the fire. And I think that now, since that's very hot, Eric, I want to end on a note of homoeroticism. Get on. It is accepted and appreciated. And that feels like a really potent um, gift that we can give to the people listening, is that if you hold that image um, and seek to like walk in tandem through shared vulnerability to the mm. fire in the middle, and that true intimacy is being able to sit in their node, you know, through really listening to them, that you expand your consciousness's access to the different nodes in the zeitgeist. And ultimately, um, you know, if we can get to a place where we can truly hold the intimacy of the other person, uh, we can start to bring a synthesis to our culture where these ruptures in these different nodes can actually start to connect to each other and we can learn how to be with each other in a way where as a group, we can unlock our collective intelligence to go try to solve like the problem of ecological collapse or the problem of atomic nuclear warfare. Hayden, thank you so much for doing this dance with me. And we're going to do part two and part three and part four because this is really fruitful shit and we're just getting started. Love it, man. Appreciate you.